Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. Books. Where would we be without books? Where would we be without Gudo's Interbird? It's a rhetorical question, sir. But where would we be without books? From KCRW and KCRW.com, I'm Mary Corey. Welcome to a Bookworm retrospective celebrating 33 years of Bookworm and its host, Michael Silverblatt. I teach American history at UCLA, and Michael is my friend. He's currently on hiatus for health reasons. Michael recorded more than 1,600 Bookworm shows. He spoke with Nobel Prize winners, Pulitzer Prize winners, and countless writers of literary fiction and poetry from around the world. Michael invited me to be on Bookworm in 1999 to talk about my book, The World Through a Monocle, about The New Yorker magazine, along with David Remnick, who was at that time the brand new editor of the magazine. At UCLA, I teach a course in American popular culture, where we spend a lot of time exploring the blurriness of the lines between what we think of as high culture and what we think of as popular culture. Today, we will be hearing excerpts of bookworm conversations with lauded boho rocker Patti Smith, writer and brilliant wit Fran Lebowitz, who, had she been born 40 years earlier, would have surely found a place at the Algonquin Roundtable, and last but not least, outre filmmaker John Waters. Each of these artists, these rebel artists, have left a real mark on our national culture, and all of them are serious readers. So today's show is a confederacy of bookworms. First up, Patti Smith. I'm Michael Silverblatt, and this is Bookworm. Today I'm very lucky and excited to have as my guest Patti Smith, whose memoir, Just Kids, has been published by Echo. It's a really extraordinary book about the life of two artists, Patti Smith and Robert Maplethorpe. And they met virtually within days of Patti's arrival in New York from southern New Jersey, and then met again and again over the subsequent months until they began um, to live together. And this book seems remarkable to me. I only know a few books of what it's like to be young and to be an artist in America and to find your own kind. This book, Just Kids, seems to me to be the best of all because it's in a first-person voice, the voice of the person who experienced it. Most of Patti Smith's writing is poetry or free associational. What was it like to write a more strictly chronological kind of book? Well, I've written a lot more than people know. I mean, I have about three or four novels that are unpublished. Uh, I've written most of my life. I would say 90% of what I have written has never been published. So I'm no stranger to the narrative um, what made this book a great more challenging was to write about, uh, um, you know, it, that it was nonfiction. And that was, uh, 
there's a lot of responsibility one has when you're writing nonfiction. Uh, accuracy in terms of atmosphere, tone, the events, and uh, and to also be able to infuse truth with magic and uh, and love. You say of Robert that he was, when young, too frail to negotiate the real world and that you could and that you didn't mind becoming the breadwinner um, when you were working at various bookshops, Scribner's, before that, Brentano's. Remember when it was possible to work in bookstore? I mean, oh, it was yes. so moving. It was beautiful. It was possible to work in a bookstore and just eke out a living. But that also made it possible to build a burgeoning scene of creative people, which in New York City, at least, is not possible anymore. I don't know that it's possible in many places anymore. And I think of the show as being like one that's trying to give kids back the books that they deserve to have and not have them be things that you learn about in school. By the way, I have to say, I love the title of this show, uh, Bookworm, uh, because I've been one my whole life, so I, I really felt, ah, there's the show for me. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I, I mean, it's the only thing that I get the opportunity to live publicly as a bookworm. Seems, you know, like this incredible honor, as if I were chosen for it. Now, Robert didn't read. Did you feel inclined to try and seduce him into it? No, Robert could not be seduced into reading. I I uh, was mystified that he didn't like to read in a way because it's been the greatest pleasure of my life. But I was happy to read to him. He liked being read to. And I read Robert everything from Sylvia Plath to, you know, to um, Moby Dick. I, he, would, he, he was a very good listener. One of the most moving things in the book is a point when, after you've given your first public reading, it's at St. Mark's. Yes. And you say that many people approached you with contracts for records and books, and you say that you had been reading a book about Crazy Horse, and that Crazy Horse knew that he would prosper in battle as long as he did not linger to take spoils. Yes, I've always had that question, as do the men in your life, about art and selling, about prostitution and selling. Yes. Does selling the art make for prostitution? Where does prostitution fit to, into the life of an artist? And where do sales fit into a life of an artist? And you decided that night that you were not ready to take spoils that belong to other people, that the people who'd help you get the reading were the people whose fame, that you didn't want someone else's fame. Well, it was also, I didn't, um, I was still learning about, you know, who I was. And I, by then I felt that I had certain gifts, but they were quite unformed. And when people were willing uh, to give me a record contract after I had only sung a couple songs based on my image, and and they would say, well, don't worry, you know, you'd make a sort of uh, gritty type of share. We could do this with you. We'll tell you what to do. <laughs> but no amount of fame and fortune 
uh, would be worth compromising oneself. Because in the end, what you're left with is your deeds, how you carry yourself, and your work. Everything else will fall away. Something you said earlier, you know, you were talking about, you know, living within the the realm of books. You know, I, you know, we also live within the realm of oneself, and I, I just, I just find, um, you know, it's imagination and it's the ability. We all have it. We all have a, um, a creative impulse. Just we all don't animate it. William Blake felt that, you know, that we all have something deep within us that we can animate this thing that people can uh, might call God or nature, and uh, we can animate it uh, as visionaries, as mothers, as farmers, as as uh, uh, as as gardeners. We animate it. It's just animating the best of yourself, animating your internal world um, in a shining way, if that makes any sense. Completely. And Robert loved me to tell him stories. And sometimes he would say, tell me the story about how we first met and uh, tell me, you know, tell me again, you know, about, uh, uh, you know, just various things that happened and he liked to hear them over and over. He knew that I knew them. They were shared experiences. And, um, I, you know, I think that sometimes he would, he would find things humorous or say, Patty, <laughs> you know, you told them about uh, uh, when I scolded you um, for your table manners and he'd start laughing. I mean, Robert had a great sense of humor. And I think that he would have enjoyed uh, especially the humor in the book. But my agenda in the book was only to serve uh, Robert, to serve our youth, to serve love and magic, and to serve the reader. I had no, um, you know, no axes to grind or no um, nothing deep to hide. I just... Um, wanted to write our story is that I think I thought would be the most useful and the most uh, inspiring to the reader because the book is first of all for Robert and second of all for the reader. It seemed to me that the late 60s and early 70s was a period of genius and that there is a period when genius feels at home in the world, that now almost as soon as we encounter genius, at least in literature, it dies. Um, Sebold coming to tour America for the first time, going back to England and dying in a traffic accident. Um, Bolaño, uh, whose great genius inhabited many books we didn't even begin to hear of him in America until after his death. And this has been a time where we've lived through the death of Beckett, the death of Genet, the death of Borges. I mean, great, The great death of Salinger. Salinger, yes. Great, great geniuses. Almost as if our air doesn't nurture genius right now. And I wondered what your beliefs about genius might be. 
Oh, I don't think that at all. I think I think like Walt Whitman thought, or Jesus. I mean, 2,000 years ago, Jesus said, Oh, I am with you always, even into the end of the world. And Walt Whitman said, You young poet who does not even, who is not even born yet, 200 years from now, I am with you. I think that genius is in the past, and genius, uh, the spirit of genius, like uh, reincarnation, keeps entering the new guard, the new young person, and it will go on and on and on. I, I, I believe that with all my heart. So I, I think that one could easily now write Whitman's same words and say, you young poet, you know, 2020, you know, 2666, I am with you. I am with you when you are sitting on the edge of a spaceship writing about the, uh, a universe we had never even imagined. I am with you. I believe it's, a, uh, it's another kind of ancestry. We have our blood ancestry with our parents and, and family, and we have the ancestry of art or genius or God, the spirit, the muse, whatever one wants to call it. That's a whole other ancestry, and it will live on just as long as blood. That was Patti Smith proving that she's a dyed-in-the-wool bookworm. Today's show is part of a retrospective celebration of Michael Silverblatt and Bookworm. We'll be back after this short break. I'm Mary Corey, a history professor at UCLA. Today's Bookworm retrospective show features a trio of bookworms. Up next is Fran Leibowitz, who has been amusing us for decades with her rapier wit. Today, my guest is Fran Leibowitz on the occasion of the publication of the Fran Leibowitz Reader from Vintage Books. It's also the time of the publication of her children's book, Mr. Chaz and Lisa Sue Meet the Pandas. Um, Well, I thought I'd begin by asking you, in addition to being very funny, there have been some very artistic stances in the course of your career and your desertion of the humorous essay seems Rambo-like. What, <laughs> what, what prompted it? I really think what happened was that uh, my first book, Metropolitan Life, uh, was successful at a level that you know I didn't have any expectation of it being. Um, this prompted quite a bit of media attention. What, what then happened was that all the things that I thought about, that I would write about, I started saying on television. And frankly, I just got sick of the sound of that voice, which was very directly my voice. Um, I think that if that hadn't happened, I probably would have continued to do those essays for a much longer period of time. Um, I just, I couldn't take myself anymore. One of the things that first drew me to your essays was that in the midst of all of their um, frangible and crackling qualities, there was a love of reading that gets repeated in in essay after essay, saying that Edison's invention of the light bulb was to enable people to read at night. And I wondered what your private, your secret, your favorite books are. Um, Well, they're not secret. I mean, most people don't ask because most people don't read books, as you may have noticed. Um, it's, it's, whenever I'm asked a question like that, it's, it's hard for me to answer. It's not that it's a secret. It's that, frankly, I am such a promiscuous reader. I mean, I'm, 
I'm a slut of literature. Um, that it's hard for me to choose a favorite books. Um, I mean, I can say I, I can say people who are among my favorite writers or these are among my favorite books that um, I have if, spent most of my life reading. That's mostly what I've done. There, that's uh, and I even as a child I was punished for reading. Reading, um, to me, I mean, one of the aspects of it is it's forbidden. I always feel guilty when I'm reading. I always feel like I should be doing something else because I usually should be, um, because I'm doing it to the exclusion of most everything. It's a, you know, it, it's everything to me, including heroin. You know, um, I was thrown out of uh, class in the sixth grade because I was reading the night the bed fell in behind my geography book, <laughs> and you know, you cannot do that quietly. You know, you know, I, I was just fell apart laughing, and as I walked down the hallway to my certain doom, to the principal's office, um, I still couldn't stop laughing. Um, my mother used to knock on my door, you know, and she would say, "I know you're reading in there." In other words, you're not doing your homework. Um, <laughs> so this is basically a lifetime devoted to this. How are you about the New Yorker humorist Thurber Benchley? That lot. Um, Th- Thurber is. To me, by far, a better writer than Benchley. Thurber is a great favorite of mine. Um, I recently, um, I'm so happy to have the opportunity to brag about this. I went, went to Columbus um, on, on the occasion of the centennial of uh, James Thurber's birth, and the post office issued a stamp in his honor, and I presented the stamp. Um, oh, wow. And Terrific. this was a really end, I'm not finished bragging. I slept, <laughs> I slept in James Thurber's bed that night. Um. As a result of an invitation yes. or a usurpation? No, no, I, did, I didn't break in and sleep in bed. I was, that's what got me there, really. Be, um, uh, at the bottom of the invitation, you know, the letter it said, and if you like, you can sleep in James Thurber's bed. If I like, yes. <laughs> um, and so I kept telling people, I'm going to sleep in James Thurber's bed. I was very thrilled by this. I, I could hardly sleep, as a matter of fact. And, he, he's, and this guy came to pick me up at the airport, and I asked him, oh, do you work at Thurber House? Because they've made the house into a museum. And he said, uh, no, I'm James Thurber's grandson. And I was really struck by that. The whole time I was there, which was one day, um, I kept thinking, I'm talking to James Thurber's grandson. This is James Thurber's daughter. This person, I, I was very thrilled by it. Thurber is uh, one of the few writers that I can think of that, uh, who I admire to that extent, who is not a fabulous stylist. It's more um, his endless inventiveness um, and his endless flexibility with language, but not his... He's not a dandy, which is what I'm usually attracted to. Um, and he's a very purely American in that way, in every way, I think. Um, but for laughing out loud, I, I don't think anyone comes close to him. And for him to be, continue to have this ability, I mean, I reread a lot of Thurber before I went there, um, stuff I hadn't read since I was really a child, not, you know, a seven- or eight-year-old child. Um, and this stuff is, from a practical point of view, obviously very dated, you know. It didn't make any difference at all. I mean, it's unbelievably hilarious. That was Fran Leibowitz talking about her love of reading. Next, filmmaker John Waters discusses his lifelong relationship with literature and points us to some books we may never even have heard of. My guest today is John Waters, and his new book, Role Models, gave me a real surprise. You know, it's a nonfiction collection about the cultural 
and, well, what would you say? <laughs> artistic. <laughs> artistic, uh, extra-worldly events and peoples who have influenced him. And in the middle there, there's a chapter called Bookworm. And I sat up straight, and then straighter still, when I discovered he was naming his five favorite books and that four out of the five are my favorite books. Well, who'd have thunk it? I'm going to have John Waters read from the beginning of the chapter, Bookworm, from his role models. All right, here we go. I've jitterbugged with Richard Serra, eaten Thanksgiving dinner with Lana Turner, had tea with Princess Yasmin Aga Khan, gone out drinking with Clint Eastwood, and spent several New Year's Eve parties in Valentino's Chalet in Stad. But what I like best is staying home and reading. I have, as of the day of this writing, 8,089 books, all cataloged, but no longer in complete order on my shelves. Each week, I read Publishers Weekly not so much for the business news, but to see what books are coming out and when I can buy them. Like all avid readers, I sob about the death of my favorite bookshops in each city I visit, but I'm secretly thrilled at how easy and cheap it is to order from Amazon.com. But couldn't they at least reward us with frequent reading points like the airlines? I'm always amazed at friends who say they try to read at night in bed, but always end up falling asleep. I have the opposite problem. If a book is good, I can't go to sleep and stay up way past my bedtime, hooked on the writing. Is anything better than waking up after a late-night read and diving right back into the plot before you can even get out of the bed to brush your teeth? You should never read just for enjoyment. Read to make yourself smarter, less judgmental, more apt to understand your friend's insane behavior, or better yet, your own. Pick hard books, ones you have to concentrate on while reading. And for God's sake, don't let me ever hear you say, I can't read fiction, I only have time for the truth. Fiction is the truth, fool. Well, I've got a list for you, and believe me, it was hard to narrow down. From thousands and thousands and thousands of twisted volumes, here goes. John Waters' five books you should read to live a happy life if something is basically the matter with you. John Waters, reading from Role Models, published by Farrah Strauss and Giroux. This is the director of Pink Flamingos, of Polyester, of Pecker, of Cecil B. Demented, and it makes me merry beyond belief to hear that he's one of our party. Thank uh, you. <laughs> <laughs> a secret reader, right. <laughs> now, the first book of the five is Denton Welsh in Youth is Pleasure. Now, Denton Welsh is my favorite unknown writer. Me too. I first read Denton Welsh. Um, I don't know if it was... Uh, I worked in the Provincetown Bookshop when I was younger, which is still there. It's still a great bookshop. And Denton Welsh, to me, just, I think, is one of the most elegant and writers about childhood and about, as he said, not fitting in any with, with anybody else ever and being alone and not knowing it and what you think about all the time. The next one is the magnificent novel um, by Christina Stead. It's The Man Who Loved Children, which is a title that's sure to give you both the right idea and the wrong idea. Yeah. <laughs> he thought he loved him. Yeah, but his love was the most oppressive love. And this is the most 
angry book about a terrible marriage I've read. I mean, it's a true angry feminist. It is a feminist novel, but in a way that women hated this book when it came out, too. <laughs> no one, Mary McCarthy, hated this book. It's very tempting to introduce each of these books as my favorite book in the world, because when I'm reading it, it is. And I happen to be rereading the next one right now, which is one of the absolutely looniest books yeah. in the world. Unhinged, I Unhinged. think, is a perfect description of this book. Yeah. Um, this is Jane Bowles's Two Serious Ladies. Her own husband, Paul Bowles, said, Jane can't just write a sentence. She has to invent pencils, papers. She has to build everything from scratch. Yeah. And, and, you know, Tennessee Williams said it was his favorite novel, too. To find it, you have to pick up a book called My Sister's Hand in Mine. That's the collected works, and I mean everything, of Jane Bowles, mm -hmm. and it's not a big book. It was so hard for her to write, and she had so many problems well, she with she fell in love itself. with the most inappropriate people. To, she Men fell and in love women. With, well, heter heterosexual Arab women that were mean to her. Yes. She devoted her life to one of them. Number four of the shared books of... I want to see the one you don't like. Okay, go ahead, go ahead. Keep going, keep going. Um, is um, Darkness and Day yep. by Ivy Compton Burnett. Um, well, one of the strangest writers imaginable. You go ahead. <laughs> well, Ivy Compton Burnett wrote, what, 20, 30 novels. They're all exactly the same in a way. Um, she never had sex in her life. Um, she looked exactly like the card of Old Mate. Now, the fifth book is one I didn't know. Mm -hmm. um, it's called We Need to Talk About Kevin by Lionel Shriver. It's a relatively recent book. A very popular book. This is a book about a woman that didn't really want to have a child but felt like she had to. He grew up into being like a Columbine killer. In the book, the mother, trying very hard to talk to her murderer son, right says in a voice full of understanding, why didn't you kill me? And he says something like, why kill the audience? <laughs> <laughs> How chilling and hilarious. And also when, when she says to him, he says, I hate you. And she says, you know, Kevin, I've... I, I, I hate you, too, basically. And that is how they start. That's how they start to learn each other, to realize in the end they sort of deserve one another in a good way. And at the end, they do have a relationship. Here are them all, all in a row. In Youth is Pleasure by Denton Welsh. The Man Who Loved Children by Christina Stead. My Sister's Hand in Mine. Two Serious Ladies, The Collected Works of Jane Bowles, Darkness and Day by Ivy Compton Burnett. We need to talk about Kevin. <laughs> <laughs> I've got with me John Waters, the author of the terrific memoir essay collection, Role Models. I loved talking to him about the books that we have in common and to see how amazingly different love can be for the same object. Yep. Love in all its varieties. And respect. And respect. Thank you very Thank much, Thank you very John. much for having me. That was John Waters, who, like Patti Smith and Fran Leibowitz, is a proud bookworm. Michael knew that his show influenced and inspired a broad community of readers, and knowing that gave him great pleasure. Today we heard from three avid bookworms. As we celebrate Michael Silverblatt, and 33 years of bookworm on KCRW. I'm Mary Corey.
This show was produced by Alan Howard and Connie Alvarez. The engineers are PJ Shahamet and Ray Guarna. Bookworm and this retrospective are made possible by Lannan Foundation. I am a bookworm, he is a bookworm, she is a bookworm, we are all bookworms. Funds for Bookworm are provided in part by Lannan Foundation. This program is produced in the studios of KCRW Santa Monica. You can access archives of all Bookworm programs and podcasts, the most recent ones, at kcrw.com bookworm. The Bookworm themes were composed and performed by Ron and Russell Mayle of Sparks. tell you about a new show from the Financial Times called Life and Art from FT Weekend, hosted by me, Lila Raptopoulos. Life and Art is twice a week. On Mondays, I have a guest on to talk about life and how to live a good one. Everything from winter travel to cooking to living more creatively. And on Fridays, we talk art. Two FT journalists and I discuss a piece of culture that's in the air. New music, movies, and more. Find Life and Art from FT Weekend wherever you listen.